you know, we're going to do half. They gave us half of Guild Hall a few days ago. I'm like, maybe if you're lucky, you'll get 50 people. And then we saw the numbers. We're like, oh, we might need all of Guild Hall. And then we ran out of chairs still. So that's, that's why this community is so amazing. Um, so I want, actually want to start off by talking about how amazing this community is, um, which kind of launches into where we are right now and where we're going. So about two years ago, two years plus 10 days, um, we launched, no, it was two years ago, it was on Yom Kippur, we launched that we were going to try to tackle family homelessness. The city had kind of reached this epidemic proportion that one in 25 kids in our city were homeless. Um, and so I met with, with Jeff, and, and he told us about a program that they wanted to launch, but there's just a lot of noise in the city. Everyone kind of wants to launch a program. And we said, look, if you look at the history of the Jews in San Francisco before Emmanuel was built, before Sherath Israel was built, the first thing we had was the Eureka Benevolent Society. We literally took boats, and we would head out into the bay, and people were homeless. We would bring them in as, as they were new immigrants here, and we would help house them. And that was the first priority we had before we ever even started a synagogue. And so that's kind of at the core roots of who we are as Jews. So we, we launched this campaign here, and we hit it on every single possible level that we could. And we had literally preschool classrooms adopting families um, and saying, here was an anonymous family, and they were going and buying supplies. We had people in our, our community actually support to get these families into homes. And this shocking thing occurred is that we generated so much energy here, because kind of the, the secret of Emmanuel is that there's no one right now in San Francisco with our organization capability. When we all put our minds to something, we change the city dramatically. And so much energy was created, we adopted over one-third of all the homeless families in San Francisco, just Emmanuel. It was noticed by philanthropists all over the Bay Area, and $30 million was, was raised in less than one year. And so that's, in a lot of respects, we, we hit family homelessness because it's kind of an easy problem to fix. It's not that hard. You basically put people back in the homes and you take care of it. And when we saw that we were able to do that, that was kind of like a good way to loosen up. And now we're moving to the next level, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is transitional age youth. And so I'm going to hand it over to Susie Alexander and Ann Quaintance. Good afternoon, everyone. It is just an incredible pleasure to see all of you. I'm Ann Quaintance, as Rabbi Bauer said, and Susie Alexander, and we wanted to welcome you on behalf of the Senate Council. As you know, two years ago, we launched, um, and we've done an incredible amount of work with many of you in this room. And so today is really an opportunity to dive in, learn more about this important issue and what we all can do as a community, and to see again a year from now, what did we do? And I'm going to hand this over to Susie. She's going to tell you about our program today. This is great. Really, really thrilled that there are this many people here. I think that the thing that we can all agree on is that young people should have a safe place to sleep at night. And there are 1,300 pe uh, young people tonight who won't. So thank you for being here. Um, we're on the Senate Council. We're members of the congregation. And I'm also, and you didn't talk about your day job, but your day job is? Uh, I do government affairs work for Meals and Wheels San Francisco and work with the Food Security Task Force and the Mayor's Long-Term Care Coordinating Council. And I'm on the board of Larkin Street Youth Services, and so I've had the privilege and the opportunity to meet some of the people you're going to hear from today and to learn some of what we're going to hear. And we just really want to thank you for being here. And before we get to the amazing panel, um, let me tell you that it's going to be moderated by, where'd Jeff go? 
by Jeff Kaczynski, who is the uh, director of the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Thank you. Um, and even before that, Rabbi Rodich is going to ground what we're going to talk about today in Yom Kippur tradition. So thank you. Thank you both so much um, for all of the work you've put into this. It's really so much better when rabbis don't try to run everything at this congregation, <laughs> seriously. Also, thank you, Michael Colvin, for your leadership on that set of council and everyone else who's here. If you're on that set of council, can you just raise your hand real quick? You're all great, we love you, thank you. So I, um, <laughs> absolutely. I really thought about we'd get about 75 people in here. I did not print enough of these, and I'm sorry. We're going to try to learn a text in about five minutes just to ground what we're doing in Jewish tradition. It'll be a little clunky because I don't have enough handouts, but you're all willing to work with me, right? Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to read it out loud, and if you don't have one of these yellow pieces of paper, you're really going to have to listen because I'm then going to ask you to turn to your neighbor or a group of a few people and talk about it for just a minute, okay? So really listen in or look around for one of these little yellow slips if that feels too hard. This is from Pesikta de Rav Kahana. It's a text I've been very interested in this year, and it goes like this. When Rabbi Joshua ben Levi went to Rome, you with me? When Rabbi Joshua ben Levi went to Rome, he saw marble pillars covered with sheets so they wouldn't crack with heat nor freeze from the cold. He also saw a poor person with only a reed mat under him and a reed mat over him. I'm going to read it one more time. When, Joshua, when Rabbi Joshua ben Levi went to Rome, he saw marble pillars covered with sheets so they wouldn't crack with heat nor freeze from the cold. He also saw a poor person with only a reed mat under him and a reed mat over him. Take about one or two minutes Turn to someone next to you and answer the following two questions. What is this text obviously trying to teach us? And what's one possible deeper message from this text? Go. All right, let's come back together. We are working on getting this speaker fixed. We know it's not working. Shh. 
Normally, the way I want to teach, I would take about 10 answers from the room to hear what you came up with, but I'm not going to do that to keep us moving. So I'm sure that many of us came up with the obvious answer, right, that how dare a society take care of its marble columns without tending to the humanity of the people, right? Right? But what also stood out to me so much about that text was the word Rome. And what did Rome mean in the context of those ancient Jews? Rome was the wealthiest place in the world. It was the center of power and innovation and new ideas and big thinking and the future of humanity. Anyone else follow this track with me? Where are we right now? Rome. We are in a place with incredible wealth and privilege and power. Some of us have parts of that wealth and power in this room. And yet on our streets, something tragic continues to occur. We are not living up to our responsibility according to our tradition to serve those who are our neighbors as we should. So we are so honored today to hear from those folks. I'm delighted to introduce or to call up our panelists and we are gonna begin. So I'm gonna hand it over to Jeff, but also it, he is the head of homelessness, but he's also a member of our show. So that's important as well. Wow, it's amazing to see so many people here. I, I think I was telling the rabbi we expected maybe 20 or 30 people, and he said, no, this, he said, you should know better, Jeff, this congregation rocks, and, and you all do. It's so amazing to see you all here. Oh, sorry. Um, so I will go ahead and let the panel um, introduce themselves first so you know, you know who's here. Uh, my name is Zachary Frenette, uh, current Larkin Street client and former chair of their Youth Advisory Board. My name is Anubis, uh, current Larkin Street youth client and the co-chair, or former co-chair of the Youth Advisory Board. Shana Tova, I'm Coco Auerswald. I'm an adolescent medicine physician and I am a faculty member at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Thank you for having us. Great, so what we're gonna do uh, this afternoon is hear from each one of our panelists, starting with uh, Coco. Uh, just to get an overview of uh, youth homelessness and then hear from uh, these gentlemen about their, their own experience and I'll, I'll wrap it up with some information about what the city is doing on this issue and then we're gonna have uh, a lot of time for Q&A. So we're all gonna speak uh, very quickly. We're all gonna speak very, very quickly, is that better? Okay, we're all gonna speak as quickly as we can so you all have a chance to, to dialogue with uh, the folks on the panel. So let me turn it over to Coco. Shana Tova. Okay, I will speak as loud as I can, and I'm so honored to see uh, so many of you here and to be included in this event with two of my very biggest heroes here in San Francisco, Anubis and Zach. Um, so as I said, I'm an adolescent medicine physician. I'm also the mother of uh, two, well, one of them actually not a teenager now, but she's a young adult, so two Tay youth, and a resident of the Bay Area for the last 30 years. Um, and um, I apologize for using a tech device, but I promised Rabbi Rodich that this is offline. Um, so it's a way for being, me to be sure that I cover what I wanna cover with you guys today. So the f I'm gonna go over a few points, and then I don't know about the 
reverberation here. Um, maybe I'll try that one. Yay. Um, I'll go over a few points. And then, uh, if I have time, share a few thoughts on next steps, or I can do that during questions. Um, so we talk about having 1,300 young people tonight who won't have a place to stay. And I'd like to put that in context in terms of what those data mean. Um, the data are based on something called the point in time count, uh, which is uh, how the feds would like us to count people who don't have shelter. Um, and it's a very restricted count. It's counted in most cities based on walking around at night and seeing who looks homeless and guessing who, or what age group they might belong to. Um, and it's really what we call literally homeless, so not people living in substandard housing, not people living in sheds, not people um, who we might not see, not people who are couch surfing. And so there are a lot of people who don't fit the stereotype we have of what a homeless young person should look like, and they don't get counted. Um, youth of color um, who don't tend to walk around with a dog on a rope uh, don't get counted. LGBTQ youth often aren't counted, and immigrant youth are often not counted. So there's really a systematic undercount um, when we talk about that 1,300. The other thing is that that number gets loosely used as our yearly count. And I would postulate to you that saying that there's 1,300 young people homeless in San Francisco this year is like saying, uh, fill in the number of people who are staying in an Airbnb tonight, and then saying that's how many people are homeless all year. Or excuse me, how many people are staying in an Airbnb all year. So the number really is based on also how long people are homeless. And uh, so if you look, if you said that there was one young person who was homeless tonight and that person was only homeless for one night, then you would say there are actually 365 young people who are homeless over the course of a year if you wanted to extrapolate from that. So it's really important to put that number in context in terms of what our need is. Um, the other thing is that we tend to, and I intimated that a second ago, that young people are all the same. We all think we know what a homeless young person looks like or is like, um, but actually being homeless just means not having an address. Um, so the population is very diverse, both by the path that led them to not having an address and also by the needs they have to having an address again. They're diverse by race, ethnicity, they're diverse uh, by gender and sexual minority status, and they're disproportionately youth of color, um, and uh, they're disproportionately youth who are uh, sexual minority. There's a couple myths I'd like to address that come up all the time, no matter where people are on the political divide. Uh, one is that young people aren't from here. Um, it's interesting, every place I've gone to, I've done a lo lot of work on the point in time count, every place I go to, including when I went to Kings Tulare County, which I really doubt would be a place, I'll just be a total San Francisco snob that many of you would wanna live in. Um, and in Kings Tulare County, which is a pretty poor uh, rural county, they believe that homeless folks have come to their county to be homeless. Every place I've ever gone to thinks that the homeless there are other. And it's a way that we stigmatize, we deal with stigmatized populations, we other them. So 
um, in San Francisco, 58% of young people are from San Francisco, and 84% of them are from California. And then I would also challenge that myth, um, especially today on the holiest of days for those of us who are MOTs. Um, I would say that that statement is fundamentally offensive because it implies that only if you're born in a zip code that's in San Francisco should we care about young people. And I just don't see how we can be part of a, a kingdom of human beings and uphold that argument. The next myth is that young people choose to be homeless. Um, I'll just say that a young person that I was taking care of with acute hep C in uh, UCSF hospital was asked by one of the residents, well, why are you homeless? Why did you decide to live on the street? And then she shared that she was getting raped every night by her mother's boyfriend. And so she chose to leave and chose to be on the street. Um, that's one example, it's not the story of everyone, but I would postulate to you what is choice. Um, the other myth is that young people are on the street because they're using drugs or they have mental health problems, they have HIV um, or other statuses that um, mean that they deserve to be on the street. And uh, in addition to that also fundamentally being offensive, I would point out to you that poor health and risk behaviors are the result, not the cause of homelessness. And uh, we did a study looking at uh, the onset and what caused young people to start using injection drugs on the streets of San Francisco. And we found something that actually completely blew me away. I thought we had made an enormous statistical area and went back and actually counted things manually to be sure we had it right. And we found that 11% of young people in our sample had started using drugs, people who had never used injection drugs before. 11% of our sample initiating drug use in a six month period. Um, so let me just say that for young people in general in the United States, 1% of young people who are 18 to 25 have ever used injection drugs in their entire lifetime. And so for one in 10 to initiate this very high risk behavior in such a short amount of time was shocking and showed the degree to which people are needing to self-medicate in order to withstand the, um, the, the lifestyle that they're being put under. The next thing, and I think this is really important for our congregation, is that youth profoundly lose social ties when they become homeless. 50% um, of the young people we surveyed in one study had not a single person in their social network who was stably housed. So what does that mean for people, to young people, to try to leave the street when no one they know is stably housed? Um, for those of us who are interested in knowing what's cost effective, uh, I would postulate that we cannot afford to leave young people on the street, either morally or economically. It costs us three quarters of a million dollars to leave a 16-year-old on the street in terms of what it costs taxpayers and what it costs in for us as lost wages and their contribution to society. Um, so allowing young people to be on the street is a choice. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, let's see, how old am I? I'm 55, I'm gonna be 56. And so anyone my age and older 
remembers things not being this way. I remember things not being this way. And we have gotten used to the idea that it's okay for children and young people to live on the street and that they're supposed to transition to adulthood in this status. But this was not the case in our lifetimes. And I have an enormous fear that when we're gone, that people will just assume this is part of what life should be like. And we need to end this before this becomes institutionalized. So I wanna thank you for your time and again, our gratitude for having us here and my gratitude to my two um, young teachers who are gonna come talk to you now. of the tribe. I like that. Gemar Tov. I'm honored to be here. My mom is Jewish and I was raised Jewish so I am an MOT. <laughs> I was bar mitzvahed at Beth Israel Judea and I just want to say to all the 12 and 13 year olds who are about to be bar or bat mitzvahed, don't worry it's not that bad. I'm from San Francisco. I have two generations here on my dad's side and three on my mother's. For as long as we've been here, my immediate family has been poor. My mother was homeless when she was pregnant with me and my dad served in the army and drove Greyhound buses. He was gone a lot and their marriage ended when I was three. For most of my childhood, my brother and I lived with my mother. She found places for us to stay, but were only for a year at a time. We got evicted when we couldn't pay rent, and then we couch surfed. I often went to bed hungry. Home wasn't the best place for me for various reasons, and when I was 16, I stopped going to school and ran away. My mom put out runaway orders, and I got caught a few times so I started using an alias. And an alias, for those that don't know, is a fake name that I would give to the police. I traveled up and down the West Coast and throughout the Southwest, but something kept pulling, pulling me back to the city. I never really had a plan. I lived on the sidewalk in the Haight and the Castro and one day a friend told me that there was a group called Larkin Street in Panhandle Park. Thank you. It's much better. <laughs> Sorry about the notes, but I would not be able to remember any of this if I didn't have them. <laughs> um, and one day a friend told me that there was a group called Larkin Street in Panhandle Park giving out food. So I went over and ate. For a long time, I thought doing drugs helped me cope with my surroundings. The first time I went to the hospital for an extended stay, or a, a, a mental hospital, I was tripping on acid, half naked, and yelling at nothing. I did stints at five different mental institutions. It's all such a haze. I was on a lot of antipsychotics, and most of the time when I was in those hospitals, 
I was thinking about how to escape. But even then, it was better than being home. Every time I got discharged, I would eventually end up back outside. It's hard to explain, but I preferred it to being than staying in a shelter. You are at risk for being beaten up or robbed either way, but at least on the streets, you're with people you know. You lose your sense of community in a shelter. I lived like this for six years on and off until I couldn't go on. And I was tired, I was done. When I saw an outreach worker from Larkin Street at the end of 2016, I was more receptive. She said, are you interested in a new program we have called Pathways? And I said, yeah, sure. Pathways helped me find an apartment and subsidize my rent. I'd been on my own for so long, I didn't want to go anywhere with a lot of oversight. We found a place at the Francis Hotel, which is an SRO on Mission and 17th. From there, the change has been radical. I took a job at Postmates, an app that delivers food all over town. Larkin Street helped me get my GED, and I joined their Youth Advisory Board, an advocacy and leadership program. I'm also part of the city's Youth Policy and Advisory Committee, or YPAC for short. Today, I still live in my own place through the Pathways program, I'm taking classes at City College. Earlier this year, I completed an internship as an outreach worker for Larkin Street on the same team that helped me get off the streets. And now I am interning with Supervisor Raphael Mandelman's office. It's surreal. I love being out and about, talking to people, and I wanna keep working at the intersection of housing, mental health, and education. For the years I was homeless, I came in frequent contact with the police. I would think, who are the people making these laws, and why should I trust a system that's harassing me and keeping me down? Now I know some of the reasons behind why politicians do what they do, but I still think that in order for policies and services to work, you need trust and rapport with those on the other side. You need to build trust. We all, need to be a better, we all need to do a better job of taking care of each other. Until I was ready for more, Larkin Street gave me food, a place to rest for a few hours, to do my laundry, and take a shower. Now I have this organization to thank for my new life. Their compassion has deepened my trust, and without, longer, with, um, <coughs> sorry, without Larkin Street, I would still be homeless, and I could be dead. Thank you for being here and for listening to my story. And if you would like to get more involved, here's what I want you to know. Employment and housing are integral for solving homelessness. And being homeless is not a crime. It says in the Torah to be kind to the poor. And when I was a child in Sunday school, there was always a phrase that our teachers would tell us tikkun olam, and it means repairing the world, but honestly, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> but I always want you to remember that phrase today and for the rest of your days, and may you be sealed in the book of life.
Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me here. My name is Zach Frenette, and I'm honored to be able to share a little bit of my story with you today. I was born in Walnut Creek. My parents met in high school, and they were teenagers when they had me. My dad struggled with substance abuse and other issues, so he wasn't a part of my life until I was older. As a kid, I lived with my mom in the UC Berkeley student housing. That's where she would meet my stepdad, Troy. They would go on to have my sister, Sage, who's about three years younger than I am. Troy's struggles with mental illness were not apparent at first, but they grew over time. I don't know if he ever hurt my mom, but he was severely abusive towards me. One of my earliest memories is about a set of Legos I got for my fourth birthday. It was bedtime, and I'd been told, go to sleep, go to sleep, you can play with them in the morning. But of course I stayed up playing. Troy came into my room, picked me up by the throat, choked me until I passed out, and threw me against a wall. My mom filed for divorce and sole custody, but Troy looked great on paper. He had graduated from Cal and had a high-powered job working for Grubb and Ellis. There wasn't any documentation of abuse. The court ruled that we would spend weekdays with my mom and weekends with Troy. The violence got worse. After a few months, my mom took us down to Child Protective Services to revoke Troy's rights. But something went wrong in the process, and we were removed from both parents. We were in foster care for six months before my mom was able to win us back. The stress of having us taken away changed my mom. She had a breakdown, and she was never really able to hold down a consistent job after that. We moved around a lot. I was always the new kid in class. I was super smart, but I was underperforming. I got suspended for the first time when I was in the third grade. By the time I dropped out of high school, I had gone to 11 different schools and had a long record of behavioral incidents. When I was 15 years old, my mom dropped me and my sister off to spend the holidays with my grandma. As she was driving home, she got into a bad car accident. It was the day after Christmas when we had found out that she had died. What started out as normal teenage partying escalated for me. I knew people in Humboldt because I had lived there, and I was regularly going back and forth, getting further involved with criminal activity. At 18, I received some money from the settlement of our foster care case. I rented a place in Oakland, and I continued on the path that I had set myself forth. One day, people from the neighborhood found out what I was doing, and they broke into my house looking for me. At that point, the life I was living was the only one I knew to how to support myself, and I was very successful at it. But it became clear it was not safe for me anymore. For the next three years, I couch surfed and slept in my car, doing drugs with my girlfriend. We survived day by day until she gave me an ultimatum, go to treatment or continue on alone. The thought of losing my last meaningful human connection was too much for me. I found an inpatient program, and my therapist there referred me to Larkin Street Youth Services. I got an apartment at Roots, one of Larkin Street's housing sites in the Tenderloin. From there, my case manager pointed me to Larkin Street's drop-in center on Golden Gate Avenue, where I enrolled in their GED, employment training, and college preparatory courses. I completed each course and temped as a cashier to build my resume. 
I also helped facilitate a cognitive behavioral therapy group at the sheriff's department and did field work for a board of supervisors campaign. Growing up, I had watched my mom get excellent grades, graduate from a stellar four-year college, and still struggle in life. Before I found Larkin Street, I had no concept of what my place in society was going to look like. I knew that in order to be successful, I could not continue to live as I had, but I had no idea what the life that I wanted looked like. Larkin Street gets young people off of the streets. Their educational, employment, and housing resources helped me get back on my feet. But without the support of their leadership programs, I would not be doing the policy work that I love or have the sense of community that I do now. I might never have found my purpose, my spark. To me, that's the metric that truly defines Larkin Street's impact. Today, I've been clean and sober for almost three years. I work full-time at a surveying company, and I have numerous community and philanthropic commitments. I also have my own apartment, which I love. I am also on the city's Youth Policy and Advisory Committee, which helps secure a $2.9 million grant towards ending youth homelessness. Thank you. Thank you. None of this would have been possible without the support of Larkin Street Youth Services. When I first started this journey to change my life, I didn't have specific goals. I had suffered at the hands of others, and then I had perpetuated suffering. When I decided that I didn't want to live that way anymore, I knew that there was only one thing that I truly wanted to accomplish. Today, when I enter spaces, I hope to leave them just a little better than the way that I found them. What that means to me is that despite the progress I have been able to make, I know that my calling is to make sure that the 1,300 young people who sleep on the streets of our city every night have the same opportunity that I did to reach their full potential. Many of you might be wondering, what can I do to help? You can start small. One of the easier ways to get involved is to look up a local nonprofit doing good work in your community and donate some of your time to them. One of the first ways I started serving our community was volunteering at soup kitchens, rehab facilities, and other groups like them. The next level is to stay informed. Too often we have decision-making powers over issues that we do not completely understand. If homelessness is an issue that concerns you, do the research so you can have an informed position on the nature of the issue. For those of you for whom that commitment is not enough, apply for board membership at a nonprofit, attend a fundraising gala, or help plan one. It's something that I've done. And all of these critical pieces, the organizations that do the work in our community need to thrive. I think that most of us are here today because we recognize that young people should not be sleeping outside in our city. I think that's why you're here, and I know that's why I'm here. I want to recognize you for that. The solution is not super complicated. Housing, supportive services, job training and placement, behavioral wellness. This can be an overwhelming issue, and if you're feeling lost, you're probably in the right place. Take a look around you. Today we share the opportunity to positively impact our community. And for that, I would like to reiterate my gratitude for giving me some of your time to share my story. Thank you.
Wow, it's no fun to have to go after those three. Um, let's give them another round of applause. Uh, not only did they uh, say everything that I was going to say, uh, Anibis also stole my, my quote from the Torah, so I have nothing else to, to share. Um, but I did want to um, remind uh, all of us, you know, it does say in the Torah and in Deuteronomy, I think, uh, we should not harden our, our hearts against the poor. You know, and sometimes uh, it is easy uh, walking down the streets to see people who are experiencing homelessness, maybe not understand why they're there, maybe be a little bit afraid uh, by what you see and to get a little bit angry uh, or frustrated. Um, but I also think it's uh, very, very Jewish to, to not give up hope uh, because uh, there is help available for people and uh, these two gentlemen are perfect examples of the fact that the help helps. Uh, we can make a difference in the lives of people. You know, every week in San Francisco, uh, the city and our nonprofit partners, we help house uh, 50 people uh, every single week. Uh, it's incredibly difficult, but also incredibly gratifying and important work. Uh, and the city has helped tens of thousands of people uh, exit homelessness and move on uh, to, to better lives. We just need to do more uh, of what we know works. And as you heard from all three of our speakers, uh, especially with young folks, the things that work uh, are housing um, and economic opportunities. And we need more of those for people in our city uh, who not only are experiencing homelessness, but who are unstably housed, uh, who are economically poor, and who are struggling in such a rich uh, and vibrant city. Uh, I think we all agree that we can do better than that, but it's not going to happen uh, by magic. We have to work uh, very hard uh, to make this happen. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, it's important that you all are here to hear these stories and to learn this information, but I, I do want to acknowledge uh, that we have two, at least two that I can see elected officials here, uh, Nick Josefowitz from the BART Board and Raphael Mandelman from the Board of Supervisors uh, are both here, and it's important that they're here, and, and it's really meaningful that they're here because these are the folks who make policy uh, for the city and for the county, and uh, it's, it's great that they're here to hear the stories of um, of our friends and to learn from, from COCO as well. Um, I want to talk just for a moment about uh, what the city is doing to address this problem. Uh, and the city is doing a lot. And in fact, uh, the last time we did the point in time count, we saw a small reduction in homelessness, not anywhere close to big enough. But when you look at the fact that every city in the West Coast had a double digit increase in homelessness, 38% in Oakland, 30% in LA, 15% in Seattle and Portland, and San Francisco went down a little bit, I think that's really important to acknowledge. It's also important to note that we've seen uh, in the past few years nearly 20% decrease in family homelessness. And we've seen about a 15% decrease in youth homelessness with transition-aged youth. So we know that we can make this happen. We also saw a really large spike uh, in adult homelessness, which sort of uh, unfortunately sort of canceled out the, the gains that we had in other areas. But we know what works. And again, it's housing and it's employment. So although uh, Mayor Breed, who uh, unfortunately was not able to, to be here today, so you got stuck with me, um, you know, Mayor Breed is going to soon announce, um, and I think it's okay to, this sort of a pre-announcement, uh, a, a big campaign to cut youth homelessness in San Francisco uh, in half uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, and a core there's a couple of components to that. One is we're opening up a, a navigation center, which is a really just a shelter as they should be, a high quality, low barrier to entry, uh, very 
well-run shelter for transition-aged youth. So we're still, we're looking for a site right now, but we're excited that we have the funding to do that. I think it's really important that young people um, have a place to come uh, to get off of the streets, whether it's just to be there during the day or for one night or whether it's where they're gonna stay until we're able to help them get housing. That's gonna be an important component, but even more important um, and actually kind of riffing off of the success that we had with the Heading Home campaign, which uh, Rabbi Ryan spoke about, uh, we're gonna be launching something called the Rising Up campaign. And the goal for that is to help 500 young people uh, get housing and jobs uh, within uh, two years period of time. Uh, and we need to raise about $30 million to make this work. Uh, actually, uh, when the mayor makes the, the official announcements, you'll learn that we've already raised 10 uh, from public and private funds. So we're trying to raise $20 million more uh, and any uh, support that you all could give or ideas that you could give to help make this campaign happen would be greatly appreciated. Our uh, friends at Larkin Street are going to be the fiscal agents and kind of the anchor institution for this initiative. Um, but the other thing that I will ask you is if you, if your company uh, that you work at or that you own is willing to give a young person a chance with a job, like please let us know. Uh, if you own an apartment building or your company owns apartment buildings and you're willing to take a chance, uh, you know, we'll pay full market rent. We, we can provide a subsidy to make sure that uh, folks can afford to live in the housing while they're getting their, their selves uh, on the feet. But one of our big challenges is that nobody wants to take a chance. Nobody wants to, to give folks uh, a chance and it's very hard to find rent subsidies. Oftentimes we end up having to look to Oakland or even as far as Sacramento. So. Um, if you can help with maybe your company uh, or you are interested in donating to the campaign or if there's, uh, you know, have access to housing or jobs, we would love uh, to get your support. Um, but really most importantly, I mean, those are big, you know, things that we all, we all can't do. Uh, most importantly, I would say the thing that we all can do is when you see somebody on the streets who's experiencing homelessness, whether they're young person, old person, family, single adult, whether, regardless of who they are, is acknowledge their existence um, look them in the eye, give them a smile, say hello if you feel so inclined, but don't walk past them. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard uh, to do, and it's sometimes uh, we kind of want to harden our hearts. It's sometimes so overwhelming uh, that that's sort of the natural reaction. But remember, uh, the, the one thing, housing is important, of course, employment is important, nonprofits in the city doing a better job as our resource is important. But really, at the end of the day, it all kind of starts and ends with acknowledging each other's humanity. Um, acknowledging each other's humanity and making people feel like they're part of our community, um, not something that we wish wasn't in our community. So I want to thank you all so much for being here today. It just is amazing to have a standing room only uh, discussion about this uh, really difficult topic. And I believe that Rabbi Rodich is going to lead us through some more, uh, more exercises. Thank you. Um, thank you all so much for, for everything you've said. Thank you both so much for sharing your personal stories. I know it can't be easy to get up and do all that in front of a big room, but um, it's deeply, deeply appreciated. And um, you're always welcome in our congregation if you want to move past that bar mitzvah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also... I also um, want to acknowledge that in the room is Sherilyn, who's the executive director of Larkin Street Youth and who's been a great partner with us as we... <laughs> 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 
as we think about how we can make an impact on that work, I made a faux pas, I introduced Michael Colvin is the co-chair of that Zeta Council, but I forgot to mention Melissa Konigsberg, and I've been bothered by that for the last 40 minutes, because you're so great, so I want to also acknowledge Melissa. <laughs> and um, before we do anything else, we, I want to ask everyone to take just one or two minutes with the person next to you. We heard a lot of information, we heard a lot of stories, and just take a minute to kind of debrief it, and also think about a question you might have. We're gonna have a good long Q&A session in just a moment. Go ahead. So if you could wrap those conversations up. I, I hope you appreciated that Rabbi Rodich was actually, he was ABC, he was always closing, trying to get a new congregant, so hopefully he did a good job there. Um, so before we go to the question and answer, because I saw two people leave when we did that. So we are not just here to talk. We're going to ask these questions, but at the end, we're going uh, to structure this and talk about what are our next steps and what can everyone here do because it's because this congregation is so unbelievably active and gets their hands in it, including our preschool classes. That's why we moved the needle so radically and so quickly um, with the family homelessness, and we're hoping to do that again here. Um, so before I hand it over to Jeff, um, Zach is sick, and he still came today. Um, so <laughs> he is going to drink some water, and you're all going to be very jealous, but that is the reason why. So I just wanted you all to know. There you go. Great, we'll just open it up for questions. Let me do one question at a time. So the question was, uh, I talked about that we're opening up a shelter for youth, but that they spoke about uh, that not being safe. So I, I think kind of the old style shelters that we built starting in the 80s when homelessness became a big problem um, are really different from what we're, we're building now, which we call navigation centers. Um, and they're smaller, um, they have more services on site, 
Uh, people can come in with all of their possessions, uh, with their pets, they can come in with their partners, um, and they can come in with, the, with, with their community. Uh, so it's, it's a much different experience than you would have in sort of a 500 bed shelter full of bunk beds and people that you don't know. Yeah, so the question was, if you don't have necessarily a lot of resources, uh, what's the best way that you can help? I think one of the best ways that you can help, again, is just to say hello to people that you see on the streets and help them feel like a human being for a moment and seen. Uh, but volunteering at a nonprofit organization like Larkin is a great way to help. If you want to do it as a one-off, you can participate in Project Homeless Connect. There's many, many great organizations that uh, people can volunteer and their time is always really appreciated. Uh, there's volunteermatch.org is a good place to go to or Project Homeless Connect or Larkin Street's website. I just wanted to clarify. When I said that I did not prefer going to shelters, uh, what Jeff said is I was talking about the old style shelters and um, I mean, also there's personal experience, this is my personal experience and everybody's personal experience is different. So there may be people out there who, or no, there are, there are people out there who have found success and have felt safe in shelters, but that was not my personal experience. And I think that uh, for young people and adults, it doesn't take any funding to look in uh, your hearts about the biases that you might have. I have them as well uh, against people who are experiencing homelessness. And so uh, acknowledging those biases and then recognizing them in others and not just standing by. We can be allies by standing up for uh, young people when we see them not being treated or well or challenging people's assumptions, which tons of people have here, or again, just stopping and acknowledging uh, people's humanity. And I'd say for the parents in the room, it's important to model not being afraid of people who are experiencing homelessness, to model being kind, to model maybe sharing a little bit of money with people, not being afraid to have your child uh, hand money to somebody, um, and have people be included as part of your community. Over here. Sure, the question was uh, that housing, we talked about housing being important, but what role does counseling and therapy and services play? So <clears throat> I just wanted to, to reiterate, it comes in a little bit about the, the question about the navigation center. These are all just tools in our chests. Um, not one of them is the end all be all solution. Some people feel comfortable in the shelters, others don't feel comfortable in the shelters. That's because people are different. Um, and so we want to make sure that we have a diverse array of services um, available to meet the needs of individuals uh, at their comfort level. Um, and so while the navigation center is one tool, um, you're right, the other, another tool that we have in our chest 
is counseling services, is behavioral health, substance abuse services. Um, these are critical components that we, these are critical components that we need to have available for when people are ready for them. Um, but we also don't use that as a barrier to access housing. Um, housing has to come first. Um, so I, I hope that, that helped answer your question. Um, and Larkin Street does have uh, therapy services available and then also partnerships with other nonprofits such as Baker Places or HealthRight360 um, that offer a little bit more of intensive services. Um, and you know, it's kind of like one of those things. I was resistant to having that conversation until I wasn't. And then when I wasn't, then my needs were being met because there were programs there. And so that's what, what we try and do for a variety of reasons um, to address young people's needs for whatever got them into homelessness to begin with. And sometimes that is a struggle with mental health or substance abuse and a lot more often um, it's just economics. Uh, we live in an expensive city. Um, it's not easy for a lot of people, I would imagine, to continue to li live in this city. Um, so I hope that answered your question. Okay, in the back there. Yeah, so the question was, uh, just to summarize it, what can I do when I see people on the streets uh, who are suffering and need help? Um, I'd say the first thing you should do if somebody is, seems like they're a threat to themselves or to somebody else, you should call 911 immediately. If somebody really is struggling uh, or you're afraid for them or you're afraid what they might do to somebody else, don't, don't hesitate to call 911. Otherwise, uh, you should call 311 um, but be clear when you call 311, and I would say don't use the app because the app's kind of unclear as to why people are, sometimes people think they're complaining because they just don't want the homeless person in front of their house when really they want that person to get some help. Call 311 and give them as much information as you can. Uh, what you're seeing, what your concern is, a description of that individual. If you feel that it's safe, you could also ask that individual if they want help, do you want me to call 311? and I'll get the hot team out here. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine as well, but if you can get a name, that's really helpful. But do call and, and be clear uh, that you want uh, the hot team, the homeless outreach team, that that's why you're calling. You're not calling uh, because you want the police or public works to come out and do something. We're working on improving this system, and I think by the end of this year, uh, it'll be a lot easier both on the app and when you call to make sure that things get directed the right way. But thank you for the question. 
Great, thank you. Uh, tell your friends. Um, <laughs> but we're, uh, I know that uh, you know, it, we'll be doing a bit of a PR campaign in September. Uh, just to be honest with you, it's really challenging because we'd rather spend our money on, on housing and services and employment, so it's kind of a balance, but thanks for that feedback. Jeff, yep. oh, may, I, may I add to that? Uh, so um, those were all really great ideas, but one thing that I think is uh, a good idea as well is, um, you know, if you feel it's safe, just going up to the person and talking to them and um, acknowledging their humanity. Like you should also uh, listen to those ideas that Jeff was talking about. But um, a lot of the times you'll see people do weird things on the streets because they don't have anybody to talk to and it's just a, um, a natural reaction. And also, I mean, when I was on Hate Street, all the kids that were on, the, on Hate Street used to say that they loved being on the street. They loved traveling. They loved sleeping on the sidewalk. Heck, I used to say it, but we all know in this room that that isn't true. It's, it's, it's jade, it's, it's becoming jaded. And I think, I think that just acknowledging someone's humanity and talking to them will do wonders. Okay, right here. I have a few things to add to the discussion. Um, the first thing is that I have to say I did struggle uh, for a while, a long time ago, about whether I should give money to people. This was in the 80s when I was first starting to be attentive to this issue when I was coming out of college, et cetera. And I actually feel very strongly that, um, that it's totally fine to give people money and that you, uh, People don't know what I'm gonna do with my money. I use some of my money <gasps> to buy alcohol. <laughs> um, so I think that people <laughs> should be given money. And uh, I also think it's totally fine to get people food. Sometimes what I'll do is just say, you know, uh, but it might be good to ask people what they want, you know, not just like go and buy them a bagel, like maybe they can't chew it. Um, and just say, would you like something to eat? Would you like something to drink? Um, and and offer them respite. There's nothing wrong with that. That's my strong opinion. I think the other thing that I would say just to uh, broaden the conversation in terms of what needs to be done um, is that we need more resources. And that what Jeff is talking about in terms of housing 50 people a week that I totally celebrate and the success that Larkin has, I totally celebrate. It is not scaled up to what we need. And it's also, for young people, not scaled up to the percent of the po homeless population that is young people. So we need a lot more resources. So if you would like to do something very short term 
between now and November, you should vote for Prop C. You should get people in Berkeley to vote for Props O and P. Um, all those propositions are getting uh, increased funding, yes, through taxes, primarily through, in San Francisco, the wealthiest businesses in Berkeley from the top one-third home uh, sales. So places that can afford it, businesses got a 14% tax cut from the person who sits in Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, this can happen, and the resources will go up dramatically for young people because with Prop C, the funding is allocated based on the percent of the population that's homeless. So right now, through no fault of Jeff at all, the, the percent of funding that goes to young people is 7% of the funding that we have right now. Um, and we can um, have a, basically 20% of the funding that's raised from Prop C, which should be more than the total funding that we have, would go to youth. So we would have more like 15% of the funding for homeless folks going to uh, young people. So we need a lot more services, and there's no doubt, just like my, my colleague here, friend here brought up, that we the, the services right now are inadequate. And so to some extent, we're not gonna be able to answer some of those questions because the resources are fundamentally inadequate. And so we need a much bigger hot team, we need a lot more people who are trained, who aren't policemen. Policemen don't want to do this work. They don't think it's appropriate um, to actually take care of people. I'm sorry that answer was so long. Mm I'm going to take this one and then see if these all if these folks have anything. We already know what works. I think we we too we put a little bit too much. I think as a society, especially as the Bay Area, we all love innovation. Um, you know, we know what works. We need more housing. Uh, we need employment opportunities for folks. So I think, as as Coco said, we really just need to scale up what we already know works. Uh, I do want to point out that uh, Mayor Breed is working to bring a modular housing factory to San Francisco, which will lower the costs of, of housing, which will, which will help extend our resources a bit. But at the end of the day, we just need to do more of what Larkin and many other organizations are already doing in the city. Um, so the question was, what ideas we, were we talking about in these committees and these groups that we are a part of? Uh, well, um, a lot of them are ideas about housing. The, what we talk about is the solution to homelessness is housing, employment, and education. But also we talk about decriminalization. It's unfortunate in this city, but the city treats its homeless people as criminals. I have been handed many tickets for sleeping on the street, and I've had friends who have suffered the same thing, and also people, especially people of color, have been beaten by the police for being homeless. And that is a big subject that comes up in our groups. <clears throat> I think a, a certain 
aspect of what else can we do is really taking a look at our data and determining who's on the streets and then addressing their needs through programming that specifically is targeted towards them. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is that, for example, um, I'll let you guys in on a little secret. Uh, there's a good percentage of the young people who are unhoused uh, who are members of the LGBTQ community. Go figure, it's San Francisco. So what we've done is we've adapted uh, programs that are being done in Seattle, um, and I believe in Minnesota as well, uh, called the Host Home Program, where we partner um, the young person who has a need, which is housing, and we place them in a supportive housing environment in an already established LGBTQ household. Um, we've done similar programming around uh, mental health issues, um, around criminal justice interactions, um, where we have this awesome uh, Tay collaborative court uh, that can help people get back on their feet after having had an interaction with the justice system. Um, but we also recognize that people need somewhere to go that's safe and supportive when they're exiting um, our criminal justice system. And so we created a program to match that need as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it does come back to uh, what Jeff and what Coco and what all of us have been saying around um, just the, the need for resources. Um, you know, I don't think any of us are going to be shocked to hear that, again, this city is at various points in time been the most expensive city to live in in the country. Um, we all know that. Uh, and it's not cheap to, to house people who have been homeless um, and provide them the sort of services and provide them the educational and employment resources that they're going to need. Uh, and make sure that the staff who work at these organizations like can live here, because um, that's a thing too. Um, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we can only do so much uh, with, a, with a limited pot. Um, and so I think that the solution is a combination of up upward pressure on the amount of resources we're investing towards homelessness and downward pressure on the cost of housing. Um, and somewhere we're gonna meet in the middle and we're gonna find the sweet spot where not only have we invested enough resources to end youth homelessness, um, but we're actually able to do that in a more economically efficient standpoint because it's no longer as costly to house people in general. Okay, so we only have time for one more question. Uh, some of us maybe will stick around after if you'd like to speak to us. I know Sherilyn uh, from Larkin and some of her staff are here as well. But we're gonna do one more question and then uh, move into a final exercise. Sir.
Okay, so the question was, uh, am I doing my job effectively? Um, <laughs> yes, um, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I, I run the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for the city. We are responsible for uh, the primary agency responsible for housing and sheltering uh, and assisting uh, people who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, we also work really closely with uh, the Human Services Agency, which runs uh, the um, uh, child welfare programs in the Department of Children, Youth, and Our Families. I see one of the uh, HSA commissioners, Scott Kahn, is here uh, with us today. But our, my department is primarily responsible, and are we doing um, the best that we can, I would say we're, we're getting there. I think for many, many years, these programs that existed were split between five or six different departments in the city and there was no real center of gravity, there was no data and really no strategy for how to use the resources that we had. We're trying to change you know, 30 years of bad habits, in my opinion. Um, we've been in existence for just two years. Uh, some of the things that we've done is we inherited 16 different databases that track homeless people and we've incorporated those all into one database so that we can understand if somebody uh, who's experiencing homelessness comes to any one of our service providers rather than getting the runaround and having to be sent here and there, we're able to tell them exactly where they need to go. As a city, we can prioritize you know, homeless youth or we can prioritize chronically homeless or mentally ill adults. So I think we're getting better. I think there's still work that we need to do uh, to get better, but I also think that we also need to scale up what we already know works. So what I've seen over the years, and I've been doing this work for, for 30 years, uh, only two in city government, the rest of the time was in the nonprofit sector. Um, I've seen uh, the city sort of just switch from strategy to strategy and bounce around and grasp at new ideas, and when really we know, we know what needs to what needs to happen. We just need the, the political will uh, and the resources to build more housing, to make sure there's job opportunities, to make sure that there's counseling. I mean, I think you all, to make sure that there's enough shelter in order to um, you know, get across the finish line. So we will continue you know, to do our best work with our nonprofit providers, but there's still uh, a long way to go. But I'll, I'll end as I started, um, which is you know, I have hope, and we should all have hope. You know, if we keep our hearts open to people who are experiencing homelessness, if we have faith uh, that folks can get better, uh, that folks who uh, needed services and got them um, get on a different path in their lives, that each of us as individuals can be part of that, I think we're going to see things continue to, to improve in the city. So with that, thank you very much for the opportunity. So I first want to thank all of you just for being here, being open, being honest. Thank you all. Can we give them another round of applause? I also want to thank Melissa and Liz for putting this together, as well as Rabbi Rodich. This took a tremendous amount of work all summer long. They've been preparing for right now. So thank you all. It's amazing. There was a question that someone asked that what if we don't have the resources? So the amazing thing about our community is that we kind of touch every little part of it. It is like the complete cross-section of San Francisco. There are people in this room here tonight, um, tonight, today, who actually helped sponsor whole families and take them off the street. So some of you may do that, but that's actually not what we're about to do. We've, we're going from this, this talking part of trying to understand and internalize what's going on to actually the action part. 
And to the action part, we're gonna, I'm gonna invite Liz and Melissa up to, to tell you how you can actually physically get involved. And, and, it, it, and I mean it, it's as simple as the preschool classroom. I keep pointing to that. There were a bunch of preschoolers, I think they were four years old, and they found out there was other homeless kids in the city and it made them sad. So they decided that this was a project they were gonna do. And there are other families that went on their own and you know, bought materials from Target for families who were beginning to get rapid rehoused. It's literally touching at every possible point. The thing about Emmanuel right now, there's other organizations in the cities, but there's, I can't think of another one that is as big and as focused as we are. And so if you can imagine all of us taking all of our energy and focusing on a, sing focusing on a singular issue, we change the city. We've done it before. We've done it throughout history. And so this is, this is where we're going next. And so I'm going to invite these two up to help start directing us and putting that focus energy in the right direction. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your Yom Kippur afternoon to be here with us. Um, it is an awesome, awesome turnout. I want to thank our panel so, so much. Um, we really are so grateful for you spending your time today. Thank you. And I wanted to ask the members in the room that are part of the SEDEC Council to just stand up so people can see who you are. We're, we're wearing name badges, so look around and... <laughs> and I know some of you have other places to get to after this, but if you have a chance, please look for somebody with one of these badges if you have any questions or want to ask um, anything um, about anything more that you heard today. I know also you've been listening to people for a long time, so I am going to turn this over to Liz Ross. And Liz is a newer member of our SEDEC Council, and she um, also is a fairly new congregant and fairly new transplant to San Francisco from Los Angeles. And she comes with a lot of expertise, and we're really grateful. She was a former director of the Karsh Family Social Center at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple, which had, I believe, over 1,000 congregants volunteering and engaged in a really incredible facility. And so we're so grateful um, for her help and for her effort. And she's really a great partner, so I'm, I'm super grateful to her as well. Thank you, Melissa. Um, thank you, uh, Shana Tova. And thank you again. Um, last night, uh, Rabbi Mintz talked about the days of awe and awesomeness. This was awesome. Thank you. Um, and it was awesome because you are all here today. Uh, thank you for sitting on the floor and being a little uncomfortable with us. We never expected uh, as many of you to be interested and motivated and to be here today. Uh, and you stole my favorite phrase, tikkun olam, uh, which is uh, sort of ingrained in me, as Melissa said. I've been doing this work uh, in the Jewish world and the social service world for a long time. And what it means to me and what it means for us here today is a chance to live our Jewish values. We have a chance to make a difference, to buy somebody a meal on the street, to, to throw a fundraiser, um, and to get involved. And I'm hoping that's why all of you came today, because you were interested, you were tired, you were hungry, you wanted to hang out, but mostly because you really, you see this every day, like so many of you mentioned in the Q&A, and you want to help. And so the SEDEC Council has committed, uh, with Jeff and with Larkin Street, to focusing our efforts as a community, as a congregation this year, and a chance to live your Jewish values of tikkun olam. And I'm sure many of you in this room volunteer at schools and at other social service organizations and at hospitals. 
but you might not do it with that Jewish lens of tikkun olam, and we want to help you do that. Your clergy is here. They want to lead that effort, and we want to come together as a congregation to say that we care about this issue in San Francisco, in our community, and we want to make a difference. So we have made it really easy for you to do that. Uh, we have already uh, worked very hard on the Senate Council to come up with some programming and events for the year, but we've focused between now and the end of the calendar year, and then we will also have some spring events. We also hope to do another educational, informative gathering in the spring where we get together and hear about progress and initiatives and fundraising um, and advocacy efforts um, so that you can continue to stay engaged and understand the issues and the problems and ask questions and come together. But what I want to focus your efforts on today, before you leave, before you go home, before you go on to other programming here uh, in the synagogue today, in the back table, uh, we have four of our focused events that are coming up. Um, I'll briefly explain them to you. Um, and there are a ton of markers back there and clipboards and pens and paper. And if one of them speaks to you or you'd like to hear more information, please leave us your name. And we are going to be in touch in the next week with more detailed information about it. And you'll hear from us a lot uh, in the coming weeks and months because we want you, again, to do that part, to do your tikkun olam and to do it with us. So the four events that I just want to briefly tell you about, um, one are the G House Sunday dinners. And where is Jordan? There he is. Uh, Jordan is uh, part of our set of council and has been doing this with regularity. Uh, G House is a residential facility that Larkin Street runs, and we have the opportunity to go there every Sunday night as Temple Emmanuel, as part of our congregation, and to prepare a meal and sit with the youth that live there and talk with them and make them feel like human beings. And you don't need to be a great chef. You don't need to be a great conversationalist. I'm sure all of you sit at the dinner table at some point in your own house, and to take one night out of the month of the year and go do that there is a really moving experience. So that's one option. Another option are drives and collections. These are really easy things. We're all really busy. But just basic needs and support and things when you're on the street or you're transitioning or you're moving into different homes. Uh, we're going to be collecting t-shirts first. Uh, we're going to be collecting socks. Um, I never realized how important socks were to homeless people until I started to do this work years ago. Uh, dry socks make a huge difference. Uh, so things like that, basic needs. If you want to help with that, if you want to be a champion for one of those, uh, we have tons of opportunities to get involved. Our signature event will be our Hanukkah holiday event, and G House houses, uh, Larkin Street has residential facilities housing over 100 youth at different times and places, um, and we are going to partner with them to sponsor uh, youth in uh, giving them, they'll provide us with a wish list of something that they would like for the holiday season. Um, we will cap it at a reasonable dollar, 